Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that today's interview is also a video interview like the past few have been. Go to youtube.com slash Eric Hunley or just search for Eric Hunley on YouTube. Also, if you like FBI agents like Jim Casey, I have other FBI agents on there who I've done live streams with. Upcoming will be Robin Dreek, and in the past I have Dana Reidenhauer and Jerry Williams. In addition to the FBI agents, I will also be interviewing or doing a live stream with Thomas Picora of the CIA and Jack Barsky, who was an undercover KGB agent. Now for today, we have Jim Casey. Jim acted as a special agent in charge while he was in the FBI for multiple offices. This is a fascinating interview, and I think you'll enjoy it. My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, we are joined by another FBI agent, Jim Casey. How are you doing today, Jim? Great. Thank you. Good to be here. It's good to have you. And one thing I love, and I was just talking to you beforehand, and I've spoken to, well, nine other FBI agents. And what I love about having everybody on is the fact that every one of you is somebody different. Now, you ended your career as a special agent in charge. Is it SAC or SAIC? Okay, that's a great question to start off with, because in the FBI, it's always SAC. Many of the other agencies, especially the legacy treasury agencies, like Secret Service, ATF, are pretty comfortable with SAIC. But the Bureau has always been pretty adamant that we call ourselves the SAC. And by the way, we don't run that acronym together as the SAC either. That was like day one at Quantico. You would never refer to the boss as the SAC of anything. Other agencies are a little less formal about it. They don't mind doing that. Well, there's a connotation that you probably don't want. Let your mind run wild. You're really, really annoyed with the boss, the sack, right? No, I'm that, sure that's a factor. And I'm sure, and I can't help but think of a J. Edgar Hoover uh, not wanting it to be said that way. Exactly. Exactly. So, and that's something that I've kind of learned over time is everything does go to Hoover. Is that a fair analogy? It's a fair analogy. I mean, he died in 1972. I came in the Bureau in 1987. There were a lot of longtime agents that said, he didn't really die. Don't let him, don't let him fool you. Well, that's cool. Now, you were telling me about your career a little bit, very briefly, but I mean, you just did some amazing things. What was your specialization? Because everyone I've spoken to, uh, they've done something different. You know, it's funny because um, I think Bureau recruits you for some specialties. And uh, I remember, you know, my, my last assignment when I was the SEC in Jacksonville, we go to these conferences um, all the SACs would come together. And uh, Bob Mueller was a director at the time. And one thing we all agreed upon ourselves, we would never let Bob Mueller know if we had uh, an agent who was a Mandarin speaker working bank robberies in our, on our squad because it would drive him crazy. He thought that everybody in the agency or in the organization, you know, was working that specialty they were recruited for. And that just wasn't the case. We had accountants doing fugitives. We had, you know, lawyers uh, working white collar cases. I mean, people would kind of gravitated toward what they would what they were eventually going to work. Um, mm -hmm. I was a police officer before I came in the FBI, and I was a diplomatic security agent for a couple of years before that. So I had a pretty varied background, and I mostly did violent crime in in Detroit in a 
pretty long-term undercover case too, not as the undercover, as the agent who kind of invented the undercover and then ran it. Um, but then I gravitated toward international terrorism in the middle 90s, long before it ever kind of really became, you know, the problem that it is today, at least the recognized problem that it is today. And I was, uh, for a good part of the middle of my career, as I was working my way through management, I was involved in national security and counterterrorism, counterintelligence. Toward the end of my career and what happens to a lot of more senior managers is you end up, you know, really being an executive and, and running uh operations at a higher level. So for example, when I was in Jacksonville, I mean, I was responsible for all the investigations. Now there's um, only so many offices in the um, FBI. Like I'm guessing there was one in Jacksonville. Is there another in Florida? How, how many actual, what, what do you call them? Stations? Are there? Well, they're field offices. And so there's 56 field offices across the country. And then there are a number of sub offices we call resident agencies that work for those field offices. So in Florida, there's the Miami field office, the Tampa field office, and the Jacksonville field office. And to further the example, we had uh, seven sub-agencies, sub-resident uh, agencies that worked for Jacksonville, places like Tallahassee, you know, Pensacola, Gainesville, Fort Walton Beach, those smaller cities that didn't justify a full field office, maybe only two to eight agents worked in those offices. Okay, so you were kind of an umbrella, and and the uh, subfield offices would they work out of the local police departments or things like that, or would they have to drive back and forth to Jackson? No, they worked out of uh, smaller space. Uh, traditionally, it used to be in places like the post office or the federal building in Tallahassee or Gainesville. Uh, we've migrated, you know, more and more, especially after uh, Oklahoma City, when you know the the federal building there was bombed. The FBI started moving out of federal buildings traditionally and into standalone space. Most of those smaller resident agencies are in commercial space, a bank, you know, a law firm type building where you rent a couple suites or something. You mentioned that you worked in terrorism in the 90s. Now, coincidentally, I had another FBI agent who was a Eugene Casey, and he actually interviewed who was probably the most renowned or um, well-known terrorist in the world, uh, Carlos the Jackal. Mm -hmm. you know, was he kind of intermixed in what you were trying to do? You know, I think that was a different uh, a different time. It may have been just prior to when I I probably started working international terror terrorism in 1995. I can't remember when Jackal the Jackal Carlos you know, Ramirez, I believe his last name was, was arrested and. It prob he probably fit into a small portfolio of interests to the U.S. I'm not aware of of uh, Ramirez being involved in any international terrorism that uh, maybe only tangentially affected the United States. So that he certainly was a very well known at the time, probably the most well known terrorist. Absolutely, but um, yeah, I think Eugene Casey was a little bit before my time in that terrorism arena. I think. Okay. He actually wasn't, it just was a weird coincidence because he was, uh, I don't know what you call him. He's like a liaison officer working out of pay. So he'd be the legal attache is what they call him. And the legal. Okay. And so that's how he probably got to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And they had an opportunity to do an interview that was never done. So they sent him. So he wasn't his beat per se. Right. So I guess he was like you were talking about. Everybody does whatever comes up. No, absolutely. And those those legats, legal attaches, they do everything. So in a place like Paris, I think when he was there, it's probably bigger now, but when he was there, they probably had three, maybe four agents. There's probably like a dozen there now. 
Um, so those guys catch whatever's coming in. Okay. Now you said that somehow you worked the uh, Pan Am 103 case. Can you go into what exactly happened in the timeline? Sure. And it's, it is sort of an interesting, um, it's an interesting timeline because of where I was and how I contributed to the case. And in fact, I kind of contributed to the case 18 months before the plane ever blew up. And so I'll put the timeline sort of in perspective. In 1986, I mentioned I was a diplomatic security agent and I was a, I was assigned to a very small counterterrorism component that had just been stood up inside of uh, Maine State in Washington, D.C. There was really only four of us that were working there. And we kind of just ran um, interference. We, we followed intelligence to try and get the latest reporting from the intelligence community out to our um, regional security officers and the embassies out across the globe. So they kind of knew what was going on. And in 1986, in October, uh, there was a very a small uprising in a very small country of Togo in West Africa. Um, the con- neighboring Chad had, had sent guerrilla forces over into uh, Togo for, you know, maybe to try and take over the country or to whip up some fervor or something like that. Now, the interesting dynamic was that Togo was a, a U.S. ally. Most of the countries surrounding it were all Soviet allies. So they, they were kind of like a diamond in the rough, a friend of the U.S., and so the president of the country immediately said it was a terrorist incident. And he wanted the FBI and the CIA and the State Department, everybody to come over and investigate this. The Bureau had no interest in it. There was no American um, victims or hostages or anything like that. It was just a, an insurrection, a border insurrection. So the State Department sent me over. I went with uh, two DEA agents and a, 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 an officer from a OGA, other government agency, they had a, two explosives experts that were going to look at some explosives and some armaments. And they, the, the Togolese government had saved a whole bunch of, of uh, evidence of this terrorist uprising. It really was an insurrection. They were calling it a terrorist uprising. And so the FBI wasn't interested in sending any explosive experts. So we reached out to the DEA and they were. So the four of us deployed over to Togo in October of 1986 and we we went to where the Togolese government had saved all the dead bodies for us. That was really not helpful. We didn't need to see that. Uh, but they also had spread out a whole bunch of uh, AK-47s. They had a Browning high power pistol, a bunch of simplex uh, plastics, explosives. The stuff was very old, kind of crystallized. Everything was kind of old. It was all rusted. You know, stuff was probably 20 years old then from the Vietnam War era. And the only thing that wasn't old or kind of rusted out were two, uh, maybe the size of a cell phone today, uh, pretty sophisticated timers. It had digital readouts on them, and they, they really were uh, kind of unusual compared to everything else. And so we asked the Togolese government if we could take one of them. We actually asked if we could take both of them, but they let us take one of those timers. So I carried that back to the to the U.S. in a diplomatic pouch <coughs> and came back to the main state and wrote up a big report about what we found. And in fact, we did find some Libyan backing in some of those arms. They came back to the government of Libya that had been sold those weapons. And the timer was kind of shopped around to the FBI and the CIA, and it was eventually made its way to like the miscellaneous timer shelf at the CIA, and nobody thought anything about it. It was 1986 in October. Flash forward to December of 1988, a year and a half later, almost two years later, um, Pan Am 103 blew up. 
Well, by now I'm an FBI agent. I'd kind of gone to the FBI from the diplomatic security service. And I would say another year and a half after that, probably 1990-ish, I get a phone call from somebody who went on to become a good friend of mine in the Washington field office. And he said, are you the same Jim Casey that went to Togo with diplomatic security in 1986? And I said, yeah, that's me. He says, listen, we need to send you a bunch of reports that you wrote back then. You need to rewrite them like you're an FBI agent because we think that timer was very important to solving the mystery of Pan Am 103. There were only 26 of those timers ever uh, created. They were all created by a Swiss company for the government of Libya. And we think if we can prove forensically that that timer you recovered is the same as the other 25 that were ever made, and we've accounted for about 20 of them, it's pretty critical evidence. So I did. I kind of rewrote my uh, diplomatic security reports, put them in the, for- in the fashion of what an FBI report would look like. That got included into the evidence. And then in 2001, I went over to, uh, to The Hague in the Netherlands to testify in the trial against the two terrorists who were being tried in a Scottish court held in the Netherlands um, to be responsible for Pan Am 103. And then uh, you may remember one of them was convicted and one of them was you know, found um, not proven. Not, not not guilty, not proven. So, yeah. I like that. I, I mean, it sounds crazy, but I like that as a verdict in some ways because it's not admitting saying that they're not guilty of it. It's saying, okay, we can't get you right now. We know you did it, right. but we can't prove it. That is that seems somehow more accurate. Yeah, you know, it was a 36-week trial, a very long, drawn-out trial. Obviously, it took, you know, years to put the case together. I actually traveled over to Scotland to meet with my counterparts from the Scottish National Police to, you know, coordinate where my testimony would fall in and to relook at this evidence again and say, hey, do you remember this? Are these your initials scratched on the back of this timer? And and so, yeah, I mean, it was a very, uh, you know, UK-style um, trial that took place. And we always felt afterwards that the the three-judge panel, it wasn't a jury, there were three judges that heard the case. We felt like they were kind of splitting the baby by letting one of them off and only convicting the, the other one. Hmm. Now, from there, did you go straight to working on Timothy McVeigh, or, or how did that come about? What would be the uh, timeline and story there? So the interesting thing about the, the McVeigh case was, uh, you know, in the FBI with a major case like that, Oklahoma City, Oak Bomb, we called it, when that happened in... Um, 1996, I believe, right? Was it April of 1996? Oh, sorry to interrupt. Can you go into that too? Because I had read that there were only so many, quote, major cases in the FBI. And the Unabomber was called a, a major case, Correct. I believe. And Timothy McVeigh was a major case. Um, from what I understand, there was only like 200 of them or something to that point. But Can you clarify a little bit? Because I think that's a very interesting topic. Yeah. So it's probably a little more than 200, especially by now. But yeah, these major cases would have a designator like, you know, major case 117 or 172. I can't remember what, you know, Obama was. And and oftentimes, for example, (coughs) when Obama is a good example, Oklahoma City, when when a major case like that is designated, they'll put an inspector in charge you know, to kind of run the investigation because there's so much to do, especially in a place like Oklahoma City. Okay, the SAC is very um, capable of running that investigation, but it's bigger than even one SAC. So they'd spend send an inspector in to kind of, you know, direct traffic and get resources and, you know, sort of be the overall point person on that major investigation. 
Um, the Olympic park bombing was another one that, you know, that happened at the Olympics. Uh, so what is it that's different? Is it, is a major case almost like its own department, so to speak, like its own budget, its own um, hierarchy? How does that break down? I mean, how's it different than any other case? So I think, it, you know, a good part of the discussion, especially really before we had, you know, major quick telecommunications like this, the ability to, you know, have video conferences securely and things like that. You know, part of it was just a way to have a lot of resources in one place. And, and yeah, it would be um, budgeted separately. You'd have a separate line item. You know, the SEC in Oklahoma City wouldn't worry about his gas budget if there was a major case designated. Wouldn't worry about personnel. Wouldn't worry about any of those things. And it was it was also a way to capture it from a file standpoint that, you know, everything was going into one file as opposed to any investigation that took place in Detroit that related to, you know, the Obama investigation, you know, for example, the Nichols brothers, right? One of them lived up in Michigan. So all of that stuff would get designated into the major case. Okay. So sorry to interrupt, but yeah, go, if you can go back to the story, I just, I like to learn about, you know, how things work a little bit. Some of the, yeah, absolutely. So, um, we were talking about uh, Oklahoma City. That was a major case. I was at FBI headquarters at the time. And so in the in the counterterrorism section, it was actually a, a fairly small section. We had 26 supervisory special agents that were in the counterterrorism section. We probably had a like number of analysts. So maybe, I don't know, 50 or 60 of us that were responsible for coordinating, managing uh, all counterterrorism investigations across the Bureau. Just by way of contrast, today, that division, not it's not a section, it's a division, you know, probably has close to 500 personnel in it. And that's all as a result of, you know, the complex problem terrorism has become. Uh, but at the time, it was a smaller division. So all of us went down to the operations center. And for probably a month and a half or two months, you know, we helped crisis manage the, uh, the investigation from a you know, from a headquarters component, sort of like the Pentagon would do for a major military operation. That's what my role was uh, for, you know, a month and a half or two months uh, when, when Timothy McVeigh blew up, uh, you know, the Oklahoma City Courthouse or federal building, the Murrah Federal Building. So then flash forward to 2001, <coughs> and I'm now a squad supervisor in uh, Indianapolis, which was basically all of Indiana. So Indianapolis Division, there were Resident, those little resident agencies we talked about that were in South Bend and in Fort Wayne. And there was one in Terre Haute, which is where the federal prison was. So Timothy McVeigh had been moved to the federal prison in Terre Haute. Um, he was scheduled to be executed initially somewhere uh, in the early spring of 2001. You may remember there was a big snafu that occurred about a month and a half before his execution date where there were uh, at least a couple FBI 302s, which we call the re our report of interview. Every investigative activity is documented on an FD 302. There were some of those mm -hmm. that were found behind an old filing cabinet or something, and it became uh, an issue as to whether or not the defense ever had access to these FD 302s. Now, there were tens of thousands of FD 302s. A very small minority of them were relevant. I mean, knocking on a door in Kansas City because somebody said they saw McVeigh at a 7-Eleven four years later would have been documented on a 302. Would it be relevant? Probably not. So even though these documents that were found were determined not to have been turned over to his defense, 
it, it became sort of a, Hey, we're getting ready to execute a guy. So we got to make sure every, every, you know, I is dotted, every T is crossed. And so it, it was a big deal that these documents existed. Well, it became a bigger deal when other offices were saying, well, we have uh, bootleg copies of 302s and we have other documents that all say Oak Bomb on them. You know, does the, do we need to turn those in? Does the, does the Department of Justice and McVeigh's attorneys have those documents? And um, it, it turned into a little bit of a, uh, of an inside uh DC, inside DOJ, inside the FBI, real snafu to determine whether or not the FBI had documents laying around that were relative to Timothy McVeigh that his defense attorney never had access to that might have proved he was innocent. Um, and I mean, it really was a fire drill. I was sitting in a, in a conference call uh, with all of the SACs across the country and the acting director at the time guy named Tim, uh, Tom Picard, who's a really good guy, was basically given these SACs religion on. They had, you know, 48 hours to go through their <laughs> to go through every desk drawer, FBI trunk in the car, anything they where they thought that there were documents that could relate to Timothy McVeigh and make sure those documents were delivered to Oklahoma City. And it actually got out of hand. I was designated in Indianapolis to make sure that we had all those documents I literally had two Xerox boxes full of, they were Xeroxed copies. They weren't original documents. It was nothing that related to Tim McVeigh that his defense attorneys didn't have access to that was relevant to his guilt. Um, I actually had baseball hats that said Oak Bomb Task Force on them. Agents threw them into the box. They said, I don't want that. If that if this has to do with Oklahoma City bombing, I don't want it. So I, I got on the Indianapolis, uh, the Indiana State Police airplane on a, you know, Wednesday morning, flew out to Oklahoma City, took a taxi cab from the airport to a command post they had set up in a garage at the Oklahoma City field office and delivered two boxes of documents, none of them germane, um, and many, uh, you know, like I said, hats and plaques that commended them for their work <laughs> on the Oklahoma City bombing case. So then flash forward a couple of months, this was resolved quickly that none of these documents had anything to do with Tim McVeigh's innocence because he wasn't innocent. And it was time for the execution. Well, we had spun up kind of a task force to monitor any threats that would come to that uh, to his execution. And there were quite a few. There were you know, we were reading his mail. Um, well, his his actual act was kind of a revenge for previous encounters with Ruby Ridge and Waco, right? So, I mean, it was a very real threat, I would think. Correct. And, and there were, he had sympathetic uh, people out there. I mean, there were small fringe, you know, kind of quasi-militia groups or people that were, you know, simpatico with him that wanted to, you know, there, there were people that said that they were going to break him out or they were going to disrupt the execution. Mm -hmm. And so when we were following those threads, there were several of them, and it was an interagency task force. We had all the federal agencies, the state police. We had people from the, you know, the prison service. Everybody was kind of, you know, doing the right thing to make sure all the information on any potential threat was um, was known. And then next, the day before the, ex the execution, he was executed on a Monday morning. Uh, we all kind of went out there about, I don't know, six o'clock at night. And it was in the summertime. It was June. Um, and so it was still light when we got there. But, you know, it was a surreal atmosphere. Uh, there were, you know, stanchions with CNN and NBC and ABC. They all had like boots all set up with their personalities in there with lights showing down onto the quad. Um, 
you know, these trucks that would show up at a carnival to sell, you know, cotton candy and T-shirts were there. I mean, it was really just a surreal atmosphere that lasted all night wow. with people just waiting for this execution. Um, we even had I got a call from the Indiana State Police, maybe two o'clock in the morning, and they had stopped a, a woman on I-69 outside of Fort Wayne. She was going like 80 miles an hour in a convertible with a, a wedding dress on with the whole train and everything in the back. And she had a cake and she was going to marry Tim McVeigh. And so they called and said, you know, what do we do with this lady? I said, she's not breaking the law. Tell her to come on in. <laughs> sure enough, she showed up they, like two hours before the execution. <laughs> I think they're called hybristophiles. Yeah. <laughs> she, came, she came running up and, you know, the cameras all had a big time with her. Because, I mean, nobody, the, the TV cameras couldn't get within you know, maybe a quarter of a mile from where the, you know, the death chamber was set up inside the prison. So it was a very surreal atmosphere. I mean, it's, it's like nothing else I kind of experienced. Did you ever meet with him or encounter him in any way? Directly? No, I did not. No. Okay. I didn't. One thing that I find interesting about McVeigh and I believe it's John Muhammad, who the DC snipers. Correct. Is the feds don't, don't fool around. I mean, they're not on death row for 20 years. He, he was on death row for, what, five, six years? Yes, yeah, something like that. Um, well, he was the first um, federal execution since 1963, though. And then, hmm. if my memory is correct, there was only one more shortly after him, also in Terre Haute, who was a pretty well-known drug dealer. I can't remember his name now. Um, big, Big-time drug dealer that was responsible for a lot of deaths. And then I don't think there's been one. Well, there was a Pakistani who shot up and killed the people out of Quantico. That was at the CIA. Not, but uh, Or CIA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Langley. I forgot his name. But yeah. wasn't he in that time frame, too? You know, that's a really good question. I, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to go research that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because when that first happened, that's interesting. You know, that was never really worked as a counterterrorism case. Um, it was worked as just kind of an assault against federal officers, the CIA officers outside of the, the gate on 123 at CIA headquarters. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I had a, a Tom uh, Pecora on who was a CIA security. Right. And he that was his first assignment, and that happened like almost right after he got there. Yeah, I want to say that was like 1995. That was actually right before I got to um, – I believe it was right before I got to the counterterrorism section, and it was sort of a, hey, is this terrorism or not? I mean, nobody really knew. I think in retrospect, people think it really was. The guy was ideological. But, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, it was just considered, a, you know, an assault on, on federal officers. Penalties the same, but that's the way they kind of worked it. Well, is it fair to say, too, that we didn't exactly want to um, elevate things into terrorism? Like, if there was any question calling it terrorism— could have a even more negative effect of getting people a little worried. Hey, these are terrorists. You know, I, I actually think at the time that it, we just weren't as attuned to the problem, and especially here in the United States, because it wasn't like we were having terrorists come here to, you know, commit an act. And if they did, they told us they would. Um, mm. y- you know, there, I don't think, especially early on, there was any, uh, there was a known nexus between him and, you know, a terrorist group per se. Okay. Now after McVeigh, that kind of, I want to say, wasn't that sort of the end point of the really, you know, obviously awful domestic terrorism. And we start to slide over to 
I guess, modern terrorism? You know, it's funny because I, I did have a squad in Indianapolis and Indiana is a rural area. We had people that considered themselves, you know, militia types. They would meet for firearms training on a, you know, once a month on Saturday. And, you know, many of them were very, uh, you know, strict constitutionalists. I don't think they considered themselves terrorists. They might have been, you know, anti-federal government. But I think there was a dramatic shift in, in that sort of mindset after Oklahoma City. I think a lot of people said, you know what, I'm not in it. This, this whole killing babies thing, that that's not, you know, I'll show up for the beer on Saturday morning, but that, I'm not down with that part of it. And I think it did a lot did drop off. It, it still exists today. I mean, I think we call them, you know, these neo-Nazi groups, some of these white hate groups. We're not calling them militias as much, I don't think. But I think there's some of that element. But they're pretty light on the ground. I mean, like, I'm not going to downplay and say that Charlottesville didn't happen and that the guy wasn't um, obviously a hate crime person. But that's more unusual, isn't it? I think I think that there are there are pockets of these guys that have to be, you know, that really need attention. They need to be watched. They need to, you know, there need to be FBI investigations on some of them. But, you know, to your earlier point, I do think that there was a certain decompression of that after Oklahoma City, where some of the people that thought they were more serious about this found out they really weren't. Okay, so now after Timothy McVeigh, obvious terrorism, and were you still working counterterrorism or were you getting more into leadership roles? It was a little bit of both. So I had a squad in, in Indiana, and so that entire squad did all international terrorism, domestic terrorism, and we also did counterintelligence. So it was... You know, we had a lot of roles that we that we played and being a kind of a smaller division. What happens in FBI smaller divisions is everybody kind of does everything. So if you do have a big bank robbery case or a hostage case or a kidnapping, everybody kind of goes and helps participate and, and work on those cases. So I was doing a little bit of everything. OK, now, one thing I've heard and you can confirm it more later um, is that in general with the FBI, a case officer works a case and an SAC does not show up to a case. They, if an SAC shows up to a case and something went very, very wrong, is that a a true statement? Uh, not, not a hundred percent. You know, I think every SAC has their style. I mean, I kind of, I tended to be more of an on the ground. You know, I, I didn't view myself as. Uh, you know, just a paperwork pusher and, you know, don't tell them, you know, I don't want to know what's going on. I mean, I was kind of more of a hands-on and, you know, like to walk around the office every day and see what the guys and gals were working on. And, you know, I, I think I was pretty, you know, down in the weeds, didn't try and micromanage their work, but just wanted to know what was going on. So, I mean, I tended to go out on things, you know, if there was a big arrest or, you know, a big search warrant that was going down, I'd go. And I didn't try and I didn't try and run it. That's what I had squad supervisors, ASACs and SWAT commanders for. You know, I'd stay in the background where I don't cause anybody any problems. <laughs> OK, well, I'm, I'm curious and I, I would love to hear what what is the path, um, you know, on the way up to becoming a SAC? You know, we joke around a lot about it. It's it, it, we did anyway when I was there. You know, a lot of it's hand in the air. I mean, if, if you, you really have to decide that you're going to make that sacrifice and that your family's going to go along with it because you know, it's a lot. I moved seven times. Uh, my four kids went to four different high schools, and that's not for everybody. Um, I'm not sure it was for me, but you know, it, it's what you got to have to do. Um, you know, I, my first office was Detroit, and it's a big office. So you know, generally, when you're in a big office, you don't have to leave. So I, I literally could have stayed in Detroit for 25 years and you know, worked cases and 
you know, you, you could matriculate up to the squad supervisor level, you know, in management, but you couldn't go any higher generally without getting transferred. Uh, and at least once or twice to Washington, D.C. So, you know, it's, it was very much like the military in terms of getting promoted, except for we didn't have, although Bob, Bob Mueller tried to institute sort of an upper out when uh, after 9-11, when he really felt like he needed to move people around quickly and appoint leaders and get them from New York to L.A. or, you know, from San Francisco to Boise. He wanted that ability. And it was a tough it was a tough battle for him because, you know, agents just didn't a lot of agents just didn't want to do that. It, it was it was, you know, people wanted to be kind of uh, more stationary. OK, you mentioned military and uh- that actually popped in my head because uh, I was in the army at one time and typically getting promoted, people will be moved to another unit sort of deliberately because it doesn't always work out or go over really well when somebody who is your peer or buddy yesterday is your boss tomorrow. So it sometimes seems to be more effective to, they move them from one company to another company. So everybody in the new company only knows them at that newer rank. Is that a similar scenario? Yeah, it kind of is. I mean, I know when I first went in the bureau and for many years after that, you know, they would tell you, you know, you realize you're not going home. Uh, and in fact, I have a, a really, it's not funny, but it's, it's a, it's a story that really, you know, drives that point home. There are 50 of us the first morning, uh, June the 2nd, 1987 in Quantico, we're sitting in the tiered, you know, risers of, of the classroom uh, there was a guy in the back row cause his last name began with W. I remember his name, his name to this day, but I won't say it. <laughs> and so the instructor got up and said, does everybody know that in 16 weeks time, you're not going home. The only thing you're going home for is to put all the kids and the German shepherd with the tail wagon in the back of the station wagon <laughs> and you're going somewhere else. <laughs> but the, the young man in the back of the room had one of the old style FBI briefcases at the time with two latches on it. And he opened it up, put his, things in the briefcase and walked down to the front of the room and we never saw him again. He went back to a corrugated cardboard box company. His family ran very successfully and that just was not for him. Um, So back in the day, everybody got transferred right from their very first assignment. And usually it was, you went to a small to medium office like Jacksonville, and then you went to a big office like Detroit and you could kind of either stay there or you could put in for where we used to have. And I think they probably have something like it now, a, a once in a lifetime, we called it office of preference, but they changed the name of it. Uh, kind of a once in a lifetime transfer to wherever you wanted to go. Um, mm-hmm. Most agents said they wanted to go, but then eventually never took advantage of it. Okay. Well, so you were in Detroit, which is a larger office and you ultimately retired from Jacksonville. Correct. Right? Well, why did you want the smaller office to kind of chill out at the end? What, what was the, um, Motivation. Well, at the time, I was uh, I was a section chief at FBI headquarters, and I got a call from the deputy director. I had not put in for Jacksonville. We have this very you know formal system where when something opens up, you kind of put in for it. You put your resume in, and then they have a career board. And at the SAC level, you know the career board may make a recommendation, but the director or the deputy director is going to pick whoever they want anyway. And uh, so I got a call from the <laughs> from the deputy director and said. Uh, I know you didn't put in for Jacksonville. And I said, well, I'm kind of trying to stay in the D.C. area. I think I've moved enough. If I could slide over to, you know, Washington field office and be an SAC there, that'd be that'd be just fine with me. And he said, I'm going to send you to Jacksonville. <laughs> and you know, I mean, what was I going to say? No. 
So in other words, he said, "Go ahead and put in for Jackson." I didn't. I never put in. He just they just picked oh, really? me up. They, I just got oh, orders. Okay. I got the director called me like three weeks later and said, "You know, congratulations, you're going to Jacksonville." Now, I didn't tell him I didn't put in, but <laughs> okay. Now, what was that like? What went? You know, what was exciting um, and new that happened in Jacksonville during your? tenure? So, I mean, we had a lot of good cases when I was here. I was here for four years before I decided it was kind of time to punch out and do something a little different. Um, you know, again, a smaller office where a lot of things happen, um, you know, white collar crime cases, bank robbery cases. Uh, we had somebody throw a bomb up against the biggest mosque in town while I was here. Oh, and then, uh, eventually there was a period where after that happened, it kind of went dark as to who did it. The investigation went cold. And then what happens, you know, like happens in a lot of investigations, it was a, a really quick lightning lead that came up. And within two days, we had the guy pinpointed and he was in uh, he was in a, a state park out in uh, in um, I want to say Kansas City and Kansas, uh, Missouri area. And, you know, the FBI team went out there, found him kind of camping out in a pickup truck and he tried to shoot him and they ended up shooting and killing him. Um, so yeah, I mean, there were a lot of things that happened while I was here. Um, you know, I, is there a lot of drug issues there or is that more Miami and that kind of Yeah. Thing? I mean, there, there are drug issues in every, every town here. It tends to be very localized, uh, smaller gangs. Uh, I, th I think probably between the DEA and, and the Jacksonville Sheriff's office, which is our local police department here, they have pretty good visibility and a handle. I mean, it's still a problem. It still results in probably, you know, 70% or more of the homicides that happened in Jacksonville are drug related. But in terms of moving, you know, a massive amount of drugs or being drug enterprises like we had in bigger field offices, no. Okay. Now, you retired from the FBI in Jacksonville, stayed in the area? I did. I mean, I think after, uh, you know, seven moves, my wife and I are both from the Washington, D.C. area. We liked the Washington, D.C. area, but. We like living in Florida too, so we just kind of decided, you know, it's as as nice a place as anywhere to live. So we're in North Florida, and you know, really enjoying living here. Okay, now you've moved on, and you were telling me a little bit about the, your new company, which was, um, well, it was F FCS Security, but you've kind of spun off. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I'd love to. So, you know, I've been working for several years uh, for you know. Interestingly, uh, a man who was one of the first people I met when I came to Jacksonville, former NCIS agent, uh, and it turned out he and I literally grew up three miles from each other in Vienna, Virginia. Who would have guessed? So, and what's his name? His name is Bland Cologne, E. Bland Cologne, the Prince of a Man. Which is a weirdest – the name actually sounds like it belongs in a romance novel or something. <laughs> As he likes to say, is one of a kind. He never has to worry about anybody <laughs> confusing his name with anybody else. Yeah. But he's a fascinating guy. He was a, uh, a former Falls Church policeman, became a uh, NCIS agent, moved down here uh, to Jacksonville a couple times. He married a lady from Florida. And I think after his third carrier deployment, because those guys go live on a carrier for like six months, um, I think his wife said something like, you know, the boat or me. And he chose her. So he left NCIS after, you know, 13, 14 years short of retirement. And started a very small security company called First Coast Security. Uh, he got a couple local contracts, and that was 20 years ago in the year 2000. And here we are, you know, 20 years later, and he's got 2,500 employees, contracts in 12 different states, 
some pretty good sized federal work in the Washington, D.C. area. But it's mostly a manned guarding operation. I'd say 98 percent of what they're doing is, you know, guarding facilities, electric uh, companies, data centers, things like that. But for a period of time right after I retired, I did have a small business where I, I was, you know, a private investigator here in Florida. I had an agency license, which is, you know, required to run that sort of operation. I had a PI license uh, and did some interesting cases. Um, and so we'd always talked about maybe spinning off and going back into that work. And so we decided a couple months ago, um, the owner and myself, hey, let's let's give this a try. Let's spin off a completely different company. We'll call it FCS Global Advisors. And, you know, we'll get involved in the, you know, the higher end private investigations, background investigations for executives crisis management, cybersecurity, um, you know, those sorts of things. And, and we draw on a lot of, um, of uh, consultants and experts. You know, there's a, there's a group of about 850 former FBI agents that are doing stuff like this, and we all know each other. And it's a great network <laughs> to kind of work this sort of thing. I mean, if I have a case that has tentacles in Los Angeles and in Phoenix and New Jersey, I got this Rolodex of guys that I can go to. I know what their work's going to look like. They know they're going to get paid. It's, you know, it's just a, a dynamic group of people to kind of work collectively, you know, almost like we're still in the FBI. Do you do any um, like training for schools and things like that, you know, for uh, active shooter situations and workplaces? Is that something that you guys get into? You know, we did some of that um, as this as the, the man guarding concern because people were calling and asking about that. And so I was going and doing a lot of that. I had I put together um, some training materials <clears throat> in between retiring from the FBI and coming to work for First Coast Security. I was the vice president of asset protection at Steinmart's a national retailer. And so I put together a lot of things like that about you know how to handle uh, active shooter situations, what they should do in the store, um, you know, crisis management plans, continuity of operations types things. And, and this is the sort of thing that I think that Bland and I had the idea, well, people are calling for stuff like this and I'm stopping doing what I'm doing, helping run the man security company to do these things. Why don't we spin off this separate company and do things like that? Oh, excellent. Yeah. Now let's talk about the current situation and I'm just curious your thoughts about um the quarantine or stay at home or i guess it depends on where you are how what are your thoughts on it i i it's i I, it's so vague i don't even know how to ask it but i'm curious you know from a controlling perspective of trying to keep people safe yeah it's a great question everybody has an idea on it, I guess. Some of them are more informed than others, and I don't pretend to be the most informed because it's not really my my space, right? But, I mean, I'll tell you as the dad of two nurses <laughs> that, you know, I think the early efforts to try and, and uh, you know, social distance, my, my perception of what we we're trying to do and what I hope we have done or are still doing is, you know, they keep talking about flattening the curve, and it's kind of been a buzzword is, yeah, you want to have fewer people get sick and fewer people die, obviously. But where it could have really been a nightmare for the country was if everybody got sick all at once. So if there's X number of people that are going to get sick and there's X number of people that are going to die, unfortunately, of this, you can't have that happen all in the same space. Because then, you know, as we've heard, there's not going to be any more beds in the emergency rooms for people that have car accidents, heart attacks, drug overdoses, all those things that happen anyway. 
the healthcare system's not mm. set up. It's like an interstate highway that only has enough for rush hour traffic and no more. And so, mm. you know, I think that as we look at what's going on now, maybe we beat some of that back. But you did hit on a thing about localization. I mean, it's almost the United States is a big country. We're, all, we're, you know, it's almost like we're 50 different countries and we have 50 different issues here. That works both ways. No, People are. are saying we ought to have one problems. response, but does it need to look the same in North Dakota as it does in New York City? Should should North Dakota be shut down when they've had two deaths? Um, I don't know. Good I mean, question. It's kind of a rhetorical question. Well, this spins out of it, and with your rather unique background, I just wanted to run it by you. And this is not only including FBI time, but obviously working private security, private investigations, you know about getting information. Did you happen to see the charts where they were showing the tracking from the um, spring breakers on one beach in Florida and how they tracked them everywhere in the country? And I'm just curious because everybody obviously is so fascinated by the spread of the virus and duh, that's a huge concern. But I have the other concern of look at this data. Look at this tracking. Is it too late? Is it too far gone? Is privacy dead? So I hear what you're saying, and I'm a huge privacy advocate. Don't get me wrong. Just because I was in the government where we invaded people's privacy with warrants um, I'm a big proponent that those need to be, you know, very well scripted and and authorized and, and everything else. Huge privacy guy. But that data you were looking at is totally anonymized because. But it's not because technically I could take any one of those dots and say, oh, I don't know who it is. Let me follow it for a while. Wow. It hits that address every day. Hmm. I think I've gotten narrowed down to a couple people. You know, the former, the former, director, <laughs> former, <laughs> former CIA director Gates, Robert Gates famously said, now I'll paraphrase it because I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something to the effect that, you know, Google and Amazon know a lot more about you than the FBI or the CIA do because they care a lot more about you. <laughs> and, you know, it, that's sort of true. I mean, what you said is true. Who's going to do it? I mean, somebody working at AT&T going to dig into the files to see that phone number that went from Panama city beach to, uh, you know, Joliet, Illinois. I mean, what's their interest in doing it? They got to have a reason to do it. And then they have to pick which one they're going to do out of those tens of thousands of phones. And by the way, most of the stuff's all just run by AI anyway. There's no person behind it. I mean, theoretically to your point, there could be somebody could go look at it, but. Well, you're a PI. I'm sorry. You'll go. You you were a PI at one point, right? You'd go pay for that information. I actually, you you're looking actually, for. I'm somebody. probably the wrong one because I'm pretty. Uh, you know, I, there there are some things that PIs will do, and there's some things that they that I won't do. I mean, I, I would I've never okay. break that would be against the law. Um, but I think it would be hard. Okay, let's let's put on my my black hat and say, well, maybe okay, yeah, I need to find out that phone. Who do I go? Yeah. I don't even. I couldn't even tell you who I went to at AT and T to get that phone and track it and all of that. I mean, it, there's not a department of, you know, tracking for PIs in, in AT&T Verizon, even for... Well, there, there is the uh, department of tracking for Target. <laughs> there's a department of tracking for people who want to sell ads to people, because that that is a, what seems to be coming out, is the government could just go hire Facebook and say, track them. 
Yeah, but where did where did Facebook get the information? You gave it to them. <laughs> I mean, that, well, that, after a fashion, it, yes, that's where all that information <laughs> comes from. We've given it we've given it to all those companies willingly. So then, I guess you'd agree it's probably too late. Probably <laughs> it's all out there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I fall into the category for for the most part. Who cares? I mean, you know, I don't care. Right. Well, I don't have Facebook, but I have all the other social media accounts. But yeah, I mean. If somebody back there really cares or that much, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a good friend, um, Jason DeFilippo of Grumpy Old Geeks. Yeah. And I had to fall out laughing because he said it actually is a relief. He said it's too late. It just doesn't matter. I don't have to worry about it anymore. That's a good point. Right? I'm going on Facebook. <laughs> right. Right. And look, that's an age old adage, right? Don't put anything in an email you don't want to see on the front page of the New York Times. People, you know, how many careers have been ruined over Twitter? <laughs> really? Still are. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. And I appreciate you going with this segue. Yeah, absolutely. Now, pe- people can find out more about you at fcssecurity.us. Correct. That, that's our website. We're, we're, okay. We'll have a new one soon, but you'll always be able to reach FCS Global Advisors by that website right there that you just added. And I'm also on Twitter at Jim underscore Casey underscore. Okay. And I was wondering about the second underscore, if there was a second underscore. So yeah, there is because there's another Jim Casey. Too many of you guys. I know. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for coming. It's on. been great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Wasn't Jim amazing? I'm glad you liked it. I'm thrilled to have such opportunity to speak to these legendary agents in the FBI and the DEA. And while we're talking about legendary, you might want to check out a friend of mine, Christopher Lockhead, and his shows Follow Your Different or Lockhead on Marketing. He is a true legend in the podcasting arena and the marketing arena. And also be sure to check out my friends, Jason DeFilippo and Brian Schulmeister and their fabulous show, Grumpy Old Geeks. You'll have a fun time. Thanks so much for listening and Until next time, be safe.